we're going to go ahead and start with our first lesson in our new quarterly. But let's go ahead and start with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for an opportunity to come together and study your word. And as we start a new quarter, we ask that you would continue to enlighten and direct our, our discussion, that we can come to know you better. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. And we are starting a new quarterly today, and the quarterly title is The Wonder of Jesus. And the first lesson is, Who Was Jesus? And that's actually, before we even go further, that's the question I want to start with. Who was Jesus? What, what have you heard uh, in community, in your life experience, around the world, when the question of who is Jesus comes up? What kind of answers are given? He's a good guy. A good man. Other, other thoughts? Son of God. Son of God, certainly. Many of Christians, of course, recognize him as Son of God. Good man, Son of God. What else? A prophet. That's, a, that's another common one. In fact, the, the uh, Muslims hold that Jesus was a prophet. Now, uh, some others hold that he was just a, a good man, a, a moral teacher. Interesting, though, tell me why the two answers of Jesus is a prophet or Jesus was a good man are absolutely nonsense answers. Well, if he, if he was and if he claimed to be the Son of God, those two don't go together. Exactly. This is, this is from C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity, uh, page 40 and 41. And there's a portion of this quote on Friday's lesson. And it doesn't have quite the, the length of the quote that I have, but a portion is on Friday's lesson. It says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Christ. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the uh, foolish thing that people may say. Now, C.S. Lewis goes on. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he was a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Thoughts about that? Does that make sense to you? Yeah, have you ever had the opportunity to talk with somebody who says, well, we think he was a prophet. And they say, well, you know, if he's a prophet, that means he has to speak the truth, right? Well, even if they just say he was a moral man. Right. You say, well, he's supposed to speak the truth, right? Right. Well, then, what do you do with the fact that he claimed to be God's son? Oh, he didn't claim that. He didn't claim that. Really? Well, let's, let's look at what the inspired writings uh, that he had. What did his inspired writings say? His inspired writing said? He was one with God. You've seen me, you've seen the Father. Oh, by the way, um, back to the question of what else have you heard? We've heard moral teacher, we've heard son of God, we've heard prophet. Is there anything else that people allege about Christ, that, that who he was? He was one of the sons of God. One of the sons of God, one of many sons of God. What else? How about he was an angel, a created angel? Yeah. You ever heard that put out, that, that Jesus was a created angel that became a human? He wasn't actually divine. Uh, there's, a, there's a whole religious group that, that promotes that idea. 
And so the question then is, why is it important that we clarify who Jesus was? Why is that important to our, to our understanding, our, our, our belief system? Does your understandings in the issues of the great controversy taint how you see who Christ was and Christ is? That's something to do with how we see God, too, right? If Christ was a created being, let's say that, because there are people who argue he's either a great man, he's a prophet, he was an angel. If, if he was that then what does it mean, what, what conclusions do we draw from his life? He, did, he didn't have the authority to give us salvation if he was merely a man. Well, what were the issues in the great controversy? Over the character of God. And then what would we learn in the life of Christ if he was a created being? If he was a created being? We wouldn't no, he wouldn't. It'd be a split between God and Jesus. We would learn that, that this created being is loving, that this created being cares for us, that this created being is willing to sacrifice his life on our behalf. What would we learn about God? That he should have created being to sacrifice his life. Oh, you see? That he's willing to sacrifice one of his creatures to protect himself. Whoa, suddenly we actually have the life of Christ actually undermining and accusing God and supporting Satan's allegations. If we make Christ to be a created being, we actually support Satan's allegations against God. Isn't that true? Yeah. And we also make God out to be a God who demands appeasement and payment because now this creature had to die to satisfy him. As we look at the issues in the war, the attacks on God's trustworthiness, what do you think the wedge was that Lucifer used in heaven to get the angels that rebelled with him to go with him, to, to get their, their loyalty to break away from God. What was the wedge he used? Now, there was no truth he used, was there? There wasn't, any, there, was, there wasn't a factual deficiency in God's character that Satan pointed out, was there? No. So, so what opening wedge did he use? Certainly it was lies, but particularly... You question about God's motives. You can't trust God. Well, that's, those were the lies. But think about this. Think about your husband or, or wife, somebody that you know very well and you trust. And somebody just comes to you out of the blue with a declaration. You can't trust your spouse. Is that going to get you? Oh, really? I didn't know that. No, there'd have to be some pretext to base that allegation on, wouldn't there? Lucifer was a trusted being himself, and so they were trusting him at the time. Yeah, that, that's part of it. Lucifer certainly was a trusted being, but so was God, wasn't he? So in your own family, if one family member comes to just, just the statement, you can't trust so-and-so in the family that you also trust. Well, for one thing, he said God didn't have their best interest, that he was only looking out for himself. Well, wasn't Selfish. He, sorry, I didn't... That's right. Wasn't he jealous of Jesus? Of the... Um, yeah, the intimacy and the relationship that, that God and Christ had, and he alleged that he should be involved in, in uh, that he should have the same level of involvement. So let's step back and lay some groundwork. Let's step back and lay some groundwork along those lines, Russell. Uh, first, uh, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 and verse 14. We're going to lay some groundwork first about who Jesus was. Somebody read that for us. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one 
and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So what do we find in this text? We have the Word, who became flesh. So number one, the Word it's talking about here is a, is a member of the Godhead who became flesh, which means that's Jesus, right? Yeah. Okay, so that's pretty clear. It doesn't leave a, a lot of speculation there. And then it tells us that the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and through Him all things were made that has been made. Nothing has been made without Him. So we find that here's this being who is a creator, who is always in existence, who became the one who dwelt among us. So it's establishing the divinity of Christ, isn't it? Okay, his pre-existence. In Isaiah 9, chapter, uh, chapter 9, verse 6, you've all heard, For unto us a child is born, his name, a son is given, the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Again, establishing that this child that is born is a mighty God, Everlasting Father. This is the child. Colossians 1, 15 through 17. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of our all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I mean, is the Bible establishing Christ's divinity here? Yes. Uh, somebody read John fourteen nine through 11. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me, doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am the Father and the Father is in me or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. Again, Christ now, His own words, establishing unity, oneness, and equality with the Father. Hebrews 1.3 says, The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful word. And then the John 8.58 famous statement when Jesus was uh, having a dialogue with the Pharisees. He said, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was born, I am claiming the, the, the name, the I am, the, the, all, the eternal existent one. So, as a, as a foundation, as a place for us to start our dialogue, does the Bible establish Christ as fully God? Jesus is fully divine, pre-existent, eternal creator. Does the Bible make that foundation? Okay. So, from, remember, wherever we move from here, it does not undermine or detract from the reality that Christ was pre-existent, eternal, fully divine. Alrighty, now the next question. Before Christ came to earth in the form and took upon himself our humanity, how did he present himself physically to the universe prior to becoming a human? As an angel. Now you guys know this answer right off the top of your head. Do you know that this is not commonly known in most of Christianity? So let's establish a biblical base for this, because we really want this out of the Bible, right? So I want to read some passages from the Bible here to really establish this without any, uh, without any doubts or confusion in our mind, okay? Somebody read for us Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And we're asking the question, before Jesus became human, what physical form did he take in the universe prior to his humanity? Somebody uh, read Exodus 3, 1 through 6. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. 
So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses, and Moses said, Here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your shoes, your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look on God. Okay, so who does the Bible say was in this bush talking to Moses? God. But then if you look in the early verse there, it says, There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flames of fire from within the bush. And God spoke to him from within the bush. It's the Lord, I am the Lord your God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So here we have a place the Bible's establishing. Now, how do we know which member of the Godhead this was? Whether this was the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit? It says, I am the Father, then. It says, I am the God of uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the God of your father. It doesn't say he's God. Yeah. Yeah. What, what does... Uh, well, somebody look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Verses like 1 and 2 there. And we're asking the member of the Godhead interacting with the people in the Old Testament times. Who would that be? For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud, and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and the rock was Christ. So who was it that was providing for them in the Old Testament? Christ. Christ. Remember the Old Testament, the old, remember the Godhead who dealt with people in the Old Testament was Christ. Okay, so let's move on to some more evidence. We've got one text. Uh, somebody look at Acts chapter 7, starting in verse 30. Read a, a couple of verses there. Or I'll read that one. Somebody else go to Genesis 16 and look up 7 while I'm reading this. It's Genesis 16, verse 7 to 13. And I'll read Acts 7, 30. It says, After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses. This is, this is Stephen doing his, his sermon right before he's stoned. He says, An angel appeared to Moses in the flames of the burning bush in the desert near Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight and went over to look more closely. And he heard the Lord's voice, I am the God of your fathers, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so we have the New Testament affirming what's in the Old Testament. Stephen here saying that the angel of the Lord spoke to him, and that angel was the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay, Genesis 16, 7 through 13. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near the spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. Now, who found her there? The angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord recognized that. Keep going. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, Sarai, where have you come from? Where are you going? I'm running away from the mistress Sarai, she said. Then the angel of the Lord told her, Go back to the mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will so increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, You are now with child, and you will have a son. You shall name him Ishmael. For the Lord has heard your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. 
His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. Now, who was it that spoke to her? The Lord. And now, what did, what did it say three times before that who was speaking to her? The angel of the Lord. Interesting, isn't that? Now, what else? Read one more, one more sentence. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have not now seen the one who sees me. So, the Lord spoke to her, but it's the angel of the Lord three times, and, you, and, and it says that you are the God who sees me. Okay. So, who is the angel of the Lord? What does the word angel mean? Messenger. That's, some people can interpret it that way. Some people can. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, Jesus was the messenger of the Lord, is my point. Genesis 20. The question we're at trying to ask is, was there evidence from Scripture that, gives, that would lead us to understand what form Jesus took and how he appeared to the intelligent beings in the universe prior to taking the form of humanity. And we're suggesting this is more than just a messenger uh, role, that he's actually uh, in the form of an angel prior to becoming incarnate. We've already established prior to this that he's fully divine, pre-existent, creator God. So this doesn't take away from, from his uh, divinity. Genesis 22, six, uh, 16 through 18, it says, The angel of the Lord called Abraham from, from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself declares the Lord. And the angel of the Lord swears by himself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make you the, your descend, descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sands of the seashore. Okay, so here we have again the angel of the Lord calling himself the Lord. Then Jude chapter 9. It says, But even the archangel Michael... When he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not dare to be slanderous accusations against him, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, who is it that has the authority to raise the dead? Christ. If we're in doubt, Revelation chapter 12, well, first Revelation chapter 12 says there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. He was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called Satan. Who is it that's at war with Satan? Christ, of course, the whole Godhead, but Christ. Christ is the, the, the lead agent there. This is 1 Thessalonians 4.16. It says, The Lord himself will come down with, from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So we have the voice of the archangel raising the dead. We had Michael going and raising Moses from the dead. And then Christ in Revelation 1.17 says, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever. I hold the keys to death and Hades. So does the Bible give us evidence that we can draw a conclusion that prior to his incarnation as a human, Christ presented himself throughout the universe as in angelic form, as the form of an angel? Don't you suppose he did that in order to show the angels? What God was like, just like he became a man, to show human beings what God was like. And I'm also thinking that there are orders of angels. Yes, Christ uh, represented himself as, which, which angel? The archangel. The archangel. The archangel. When he appeared to Abraham <coughs> as a visitor, he appeared as a man, too. He did that as well, and so did a couple other angels. Right. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Do you think that Lucifer was alleging equality with the Father when he started his rebellion in heaven, and he was claiming equality with the Father, or was he alleging equality with the Son? Was his attack on the Father directly, or was his attack on the Father through attacking the Son? 
claiming that the father was arbitrary. The father had favoritism, looking over and suggesting that, hey, Michael over here and I, we're the same. There's no difference between Michael and I. And you see, Michael gets to go in these special councils with the father that I don't get to go into. Which means, I I don't know if y'all realize this or not, God's arbitrary. He has favorites. He plays favorites up here. That's where the jealousy came in. Yeah. And so the opening wedge, the pretext that Lucifer used in heaven to cause disaffection, to undermine God's trustworthiness, was this idea that God plays favorites, that he uh, is not fair, that he is arbitrary based on this idea that there's no difference between Lucifer and Michael. I'm going to give you some more biblical evidence here for this in a second. Go ahead. So then the angels in heaven did not recognize God and Jesus as equal. Well, there, there was some confusion about that. Absolutely. And I'm going to show you some evidence for that. Okay? Remember the history of creation. Lucifer is called the son of the morning. morning. He was the first being created by God. So all the other angelic hosts, when they come into existence, who do they meet? God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, and Lucifer. They're all in the scene before. Right? Yeah. yeah. And so, uh, so this process. Okay, let's give you some more evidence here. It says in Isaiah fourteen twelve, it says, How have you fallen from heaven, O morning star? And in some versions it's translated, O Lucifer, because Lucifer is Latin for? Yeah, we hear, it means, it means light bearer, exactly. Illuminate, luminescence, Lucifer means to bear light, okay? The morning star, the bright morning star. How have you fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn? You have been cast onto earth, so forth and so on. Now, 2 Peter 1.19. Tell me who this is talking about. Uh, by the way, who is the Isaiah verse talking about? Lucifer. Satan. Tell me who this verse is talking about. 2 Peter 1.19 And we have the word of the prophets made more certain, and you will do well to pay attention to it, as to the light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Christ. Whoa! And the word here is? The word here in Greek is phosphorus. Translated into Latin is Lucifer. Latin word for Christ here is Lucifer. Wait a minute. What's that mean? Well, what does Lucifer mean? Light bearer. John says that Jesus is the light of the world. He is the one who lightens all men. So, what is it telling us? That in heaven, prior to the rebellion, there was a created being named Lucifer, covering cherub, light bearer. And there was a divine being, pre-existent, eternal creator, who presented himself as a light bearer as well, named Michael, but also the bright morning star, Lucifer. So we have the Lucifer the created, we have the light bearer, the divine, eternal one, and Lucifer looks over, Lucifer the created looks over, and says, there's no difference between us. Now, did Christ, when he was on earth, was Christ... Though he presented himself as a human, was he still God? Yes. Yes. But did he do such a good job of being a human that the human beings around him could not see that he was God? Absolutely. At least some. Do you think he was equally good at being an angel? Equally humble at being an angel? Absolutely. Yes. Can we look at the the analogy between Christ and Satan in heaven uh, as the... Like, like here on earth, we have 
well, heck, we could have a source of light, like a candle or a flashlight or something, and you have a mirror that reflects that light. Both give the light. You can see light through both of them, but only one is an actual source of light. The other one, if there's no light, has nothing to offer. Yeah, I understand what you mean. <laughs> and we are told <laughs> in education we are told we are told in the book education that uh, we are to be thinkers not mere reflectors of other person's light or another individual's light okay. isn't that what we're said isn't that what we're said we are to be thinkers not mere reflectors now that's certainly true when it comes to other people you're not to reflect my ideas you're not to reflect Alan's ideas uh you're not going to reflect each other. We're supposed to be thinkers, come to our own ideas. But when it comes to relationship with God, is there anything we can come up with that doesn't already have its origin, any good thing, that is, have its origin in God? So in a certain sense, I don't think it's possible for us not to be a reflector of God's goodness, reflecting something good. But does that mean he wants us to be non-thinking entities who sit back and go, okay, God, you tell me what to speak, you tell me what to say, you tell me what to think, I'll do it. Do you want me to wear the green today? you want me to wear the blue today? Do you want me to get up early? you want me to get up late? I'll just reflect whatever you want me to reflect. Is that how God would want us to be? No, not at all. That's not the direction I was headed. No, so, but it is true that all truth, all love, all light comes from God, but he wants us to also be individuals in the way we receive and then express that's yeah yes i was wondering if russell wasn't trying to say the two lucifers one was an actual source yes whereas, one was a source of light whereas, whereas lucifer here. the created was a reflection of that light a source designed yeah. to share the light but i would actually change that slightly and say he was a conduit mm-hmm. rather than a reflector he was a conduit and you, what do you think about fiber optics? Mm-hmm. Okay, the source is back here, and you think of fiber optic cable, and the, and the fiber optics are a conduit. But when it comes out the other end, where does it appear the source is? I mean, it's coming out the end. Okay, and so we are to be conduits, I think, of, of God's. God is the source, but aren't we to be, isn't to flow through us to others, and so forth, Lucifer too. So it's not just reflecting. I, I see it more as a conduit. It's... Okay. Yeah. But yes, he's not a source, I would agree. He goes through our brain <clears throat> and comes back out. Yeah. Yes, Johnny. I guess I, I want to be brazen enough to ask, why was this designed this way, where they both had the same name, where they were so close that we would misunderstand later? Is there some... Yes, there's a reason for that. First Timothy 6.16. First Timothy 6.16. It says that God lives, and you guys can look it up if you want, God alone is immortal, number one. That's a powerful truth for us to realize, especially when there's so much misrepresentation about mortality of the soul and immortality. It says God alone is immortal. But it goes on to say he lives in unapproachable light. Christ said no one has seen the Father save the Son who's come from the Father. No one can see the Father. And what does that all mean? Even an angelic being, as highly exalted and gifted as Lucifer, can he fully appreciate infinity? No. No, he cannot enter into infinity. There are levels that he that are beyond his ability to appreciate and interface with. However, a being who is also infinite, Christ, can enter infinity. So, the difficulty here... So, 
created beings can never come into full intimacy with God. So God humbles himself to come out and meet them on their level. So even in a perfection, God was constantly reaching out to meet his creatures where they were so they could have the closest relationship possible. And thus, Christ is a member of the Godhead, that bridge builder, that go-between, the one who reaches out to connect the creation in a very personal and intimate way with the Godhead. Otherwise, there would be this gap between, if you see what I'm saying. But he's also so humble that he didn't uh, keep a distance between himself represented in angelic form and his creatures putting himself on a throne. He brought one of his creatures all the way up with apparent equality, giving him same apparent position and respect within the realm, so to speak. How humble, how gracious, how loving is God to do that? Yeah, so I think it's very telling about God's character. Yes? I'm thinking about even the discernment of created beings like in angels. Um, in Spirit Prophecy, we have where she writes about the angels to come in and out the gates of heaven have to present the gold card because they don't have discernment with one another. Yeah, do we think that is a literal thing or do we think that's a metaphorical thing? Because we say, it says in Revelation, buy of me gold tried in the fire. And what is the gold tried in the fire that we're to buy? Character. It's Christ-like character. So the gold card, is it simply, are we are to present character and harmony, or are they to present character and harmony with gods rather than in harmony with Lucifer's? They're to present their loyalty. They're to present the fact that they value God's law of love and his principles of freedom. And that's what they're presenting to be part of the realm of heaven versus Satan's rebellious attitude who doesn't have that character of gold. Is it a literal little card, an ID card? Or is it more likely the loyalty of their heart devotion metaphorically represented with the gold card? Yeah, I'm thinking Shekinah glory also, that that would reflect naturally. Well, one of the founders of our church, and this is very powerful stuff I'm going to share with you right here. It's really cool. It's out of Patriarchs and Prophets, page 35 and 36. It's this whole dynamic about how this, this rebellion started, about who Christ was, how he presented himself. By the way, um, in the Old Testament sanctuary service, I don't know if you've thought about it. Uh, you know, we, we teach all the time. The high priest was the only one who could go in to the most holy place, to the Shekinah, and, and be in there. Anybody else would be whacked, poof, dead, if they go into that Shekinah glory, right? And the high priest represents Christ. And that's why he's the only one who can go in. But after Aaron was anointed, after Aaron became high priest, after the high priestly ministry was in effect, didn't Moses still go in and talk to God face to face? Was Moses the high priest? No. no. Well, how come Moses wasn't whacked? Friend of God. Well, yes, he was. There's no question. But in the... Was such that he could. Pardon? His character had changed to where he could. Well, I'm going to suggest to you the whole system. It's a teaching tool. It's a little, it's a little theater acting out the great controversy in heaven, the role of Christ. Uh, Mo- Moses, didn't he tell him after he left, another like me would come? Right? And who was the other that was going to come? Christ. Christ. And, and the other, like, what was Moses' role? He was the go-between, between the Father. Don't, talk to, don't let God talk to us lest we die. You talk to God, and, and then you come tell us what God says. Moses was standing between them and God by their request, right? Yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to suggest to you that Moses could go into God's presence because Moses represents Christ prior to his incarnation in the system. The lamb that was slain represents Christ during his incarnation on earth. And the high priest represents Christ after his resurrection in his ministry, after his victory here on earth. And that's why you're able to have this. The system represents these, these things. It's very interesting. Anyway, so, uh, well, yes. Got a question? Oh, yes. 
The question I have is, Lucifer or Satan was an angel. Christ was an angel at one time, or I should say... Manifested, is Right. ...present God to the angels. At that time, not all the angels got it. Not until the cross did they get it. How about Satan? Could he have been changed his mind just before the cross? No. Had he already... No. Uh, Satan had persisted so long that he'd actually destroyed within himself the faculties that recognize and respond to truth. There was a time in heaven prior to his casting out that he could have actually turned back while he was still wavering in his decision. But there comes a time if we persist in rebellion long enough, we actually destroy within us the faculties that recognize and respond to truth. And, uh, and there's... there's there's no more that God can do for us in that, in that situation. But let me read this to you. Patriarchs and Prophets 35 and 36. It says, Though all his glory was from God, this mighty angel came to regard it as pertaining to himself. Not content with his position, though honored above the heavenly host, he ventured to covet, covet homage due only to the Creator. Instead of seeking to make God supreme in the affections and allegiance of all created beings, it was his endeavor to secure their service and loyalty to himself. Now get this, and coveting the glory which, with which the infinite Father had invested in his Son. This prince of angels aspired to power that was the prerogative of Christ alone. You see, that wedge, he was attacking Christ, he was jealous of the position Christ held, to dispute the supremacy of the Son of God, thus impeaching the wisdom and love of the Creator had become the purpose of this prince of angels. So how did he attack God? Through the allegations against Christ and his attack on Christ. And this will help us understand why it was that Christ was the member of the Godhead who came. Why it was that Christ was the member of the Godhead through whom which all things were created. Okay, Because the allegations against God were through preferences shown to Christ. And Lucifer's allegations that there was an equality between Christ and Lucifer. Thus, it makes sense now. Well, that makes sense why Christ was the member of the Godhead through which everything was created. He's demonstrating there's not equal. Lucifer doesn't have creative power. Christ does. There's a real difference going on here. Okay, to this object, he was about to bend the energies of, of his mastermind, which, next to Christ, was first among the hosts of God. But he who would have the will of all his creatures free, notice that, will of all the creatures free, this is God, left none unguarded in the bewildering sophistry by which Satan would seek to justify it, to justify itself. Now, notice what this sentence means. She sometimes uses language that's hard to follow, but it says... God wouldn't leave them unguarded. In other words, he wouldn't leave them unprepared for this bewildering sophistry, for Satan's strategy, for his war plan, for what Satan was about to do. God would not leave them unprepared. He was going to prepare them for it. So before the great contest should open, all were to have a clear presentation of his will, whose wisdom and goodness were the spring of all their joy. The king of the universe summoned the heavenly host. This goes to your question. Did they not know that Christ was fully God? The king of the universe summoned the heavenly host before him that in their presence he might set forth the true position of his son and show the relation he sustained to all created beings. The Son of God shared the Father's throne and the glory of the eternal, self-existent one and circled them both. About the throne gathered the holy angels, a vast, unnumbered throng, 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, the most exalted angels as ministers and subjects, rejoicing at the light that fell from the presence of the deity. Anyway, do you see this process going on here? Do you see the allegations? Do you see that there's confusion? Do you see the need for him to come and actually declare the truth about who Christ was? Because Satan was making allegations that there were, they were equal. 
the Bible gives us the foundation for this, and I've given, hopefully, founded, given the biblical text to show that there is support for this understanding. Most Christians do not see this, but it's there if we look for it. Questions about that so far? So why is it important that Christ be fully God? Back to that question. Rather than a prophet, rather than a good man, rather than a created angel, rather than any of these other things people throw out about Christ. Why is it important that we recognize He is fully God? Because then Satan's accusations would be true. If he, if he, if he was a pro, just a prophet or just a good person. Only he could answer the questions that have been raised. Only God can answer questions about God. If he wasn't fully God, then Satan's allegations are true. If he wasn't fully God, we'd learn good things about a created being, but we still wonder what kind of person God is, right? See, the issues will never be satisfied in the war if Christ was not fully God. All right, now we're just now going to go into Sabbath lesson. <laughs> Somebody read the second paragraph that begins. It is. It is what might be called the scandal of the particular. The Messiah had to come from somewhere, all right, but not from a place so familiar to us, and certainly not from a family that is just like the rest of ours. In one form or another, the same fundamental concerns expressed by these local townspeople concerning his identity have framed the debate about Jesus across the centuries, heightening the mystique around him. That's good. So the question here is, uh, let's try to put ourselves in, in, in their difficult state. I want you to imagine right now, Somebody that you grew up with, you went to elementary school with, you went to Collegeville Academy with, they, they were born either in Udawal or Summit. Now, at the age, of, uh, they worked, and after they graduated high school, they worked with their dad in the carpenter business here in town, building houses. You see him out there framing houses for, for, for several, multiple years. And now at age 30, he comes and goes to the sanctuary here on, on Sabbath morning and gets up with the pulpit and proclaims himself to be the Messiah. Would that be easy for you to deal with? It would be difficult, wouldn't it? It would be very difficult. So I think in so many ways we have a little easier grasping this than the people in that day had. And weren't there others that proclaimed to be Christ during that time too? Yes. He wasn't the first one that came along. There were numerous false messiahs. The devil, exactly right. The devil uh, wants to confuse the mind. So he had many false messiahs coming along, proclaiming themselves to be Christ. Many uh, revolutionaries there to deliver the people of Israel. Remember, he fossed uh, pictures of, of what the Messiah would do to throw off the Roman yoke. And had these rebellions constantly going up in the, uh, the Palestine area there because of these false messiahs coming along. Right, exactly. Yeah. And so in, in our church, if somebody stands up, in fact, and says they have the gift of prophecy... Have we had that happen in the last few years? Periodically, somebody comes along and says they've been, they're a prophet. Yeah. And, and have we lost a certain um, confidence in people to come up along and say that? Because these, these people who've, who've had this so-called prophetic gift end up with these wild and crazy theories and ideas that, that end up not being borne out in fact? Yeah. So if somebody were to come do it now, we would uh, all be very, very skeptical, wouldn't we? Yeah. All right, let's go to Sunday and Monday's lesson. Sunday and Monday's lesson is really uh, kind of together. And uh, Matthew 16, 13, and 14. Uh, some, somebody read that. Matthew 16, 13, and 14. When Jesus came to the region to Syria and Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do, who do the people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And have you considered this issue? 
that some thought he was John the Baptist. Now think about this. I want, I want to focus on the John the Baptist question first. Now the lesson suggests that this happened because they lived in a time with no mass media. There's no television, no radio, no newspapers. And uh, information traveled by word of mouth and a lot of confusion could occur this way. And I certainly think that could be part of it. But I think there's something more going on. And I want to uh, remember the text here. Who did the son, people say the Son of Man is? Well, some say John the Baptist. Now let's read Mark 11, 27 through 33. And this is what it says, Mark 11, 27 through 33. They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests and teachers of the law and elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you the authority to do this? Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism. Was it from heaven or was it from men? Tell me. They discussed it among themselves. If we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? If he say from men, they feared the people, for everyone held that John was really a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Jesus said, neither will I tell you about what authority I do these things. <laughs> now what, is this, what, is, what light does this text shed on the idea that some thought he was John the Baptist? Who did John the Baptist say Jesus was? The Messiah. Clearly, it's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Did the leadership of the day and the people understand and know that? No. no. Yes, they did know that. That's why they didn't want to admit John the Baptist's baptism was from, from God, because as soon as they say it's from God, then they will... I mean, it's right in the text. It says, well, well it says, uh, they discuss among themselves. If we say it's from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? Why didn't you believe John? He says, I'm the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world. They knew. They couldn't endorse John the Baptist. And they recognized that John the Baptist wasn't claiming to be Jesus. They recognized there was a difference between the two. Didn't they? Yeah. yeah. So what is this suggesting? Uh, do you think it's possible that uh, there was purposeful misinformation, defamation, distortion, lying, misrepresentation going on by certain people to keep people confused about who Jesus was? So I think the allegation that some think you're John the Baptist is evidence that people were actually behind the scenes gossiping, rumor-monging, spreading lies, distorting the facts to keep people from recognizing who Jesus was. Because I think the evidence is here. They knew that John the Baptist and Jesus were not the same person. They were contemporaries. How could they be? Exactly. Now, the Elijah one is a little more interesting because everybody believes and knows the Bible teaches that Elijah was taken away to heaven, never saw death. And there's a prophecy that before the, the coming, before the great day of the, of the Lord, that the, the prophet Elijah, the Elijah message, Elijah prophet, would come again. And so the Elijah one's a little more interesting. Some people could have, I think, innocently uh, made a, a false uh, conclusion because, you know, Christ himself endorsed John the Baptist as the Elijah to come. Remember he said Elisa, Elias would come before the, the, the Messiah? Well, uh, if you will have it, John the Baptist is, is him. So I think that prophecy was out there, and some people could have innocently had that as a mistaken identity, thinking Christ was, was the fulfillment of that prophecy. All right, Tuesday and Wednesday's lesson. Do you guys have any questions from Tuesday and Wednesday's lesson at all? Any issues? Well, Wednesday's lesson, it asks this. It says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. Why is this message of the cross so important for us today as well? That's the question from the lesson. So first, tell me, why is the cross foolishness to those who are perishing? Think it through. Who, who, who are perishing on this earth? 
You know, it's foolishness, is it? Hmm. Well, if you operate in the principles of survival of the fittest, it would be foolish to give up your own life. Okay. Save someone else. I mean, that would be that would be that would be completely contradictory to everything you are. I, I think you're going down the right trail. Let's, let's let's take a little context shift. If you had pneumonia, and you're dying of pneumonia, would antibiotics be foolishness to those who are dying of pneumonia? No. No. Well, isn't Christ the remedy for our terminal state? Yeah. Then how come it's foolishness to those who are perishing? What's the deal on that? If they don't believe he's the believe. son of God or you know part of the Godhead, if he's just a good man or a prophet, then he can't really do anything to. They don't know sick. Oh, say that louder. They don't know they're ill or sick. Yes. How about if you got pneumonia, but you don't think there's anything wrong with you? How many of you think you're perfectly healthy and fine? <laughs> then somebody tries to give you antibiotics, you go, that's nonsense, I don't need those things. Right? Or what if you think the antibiotics are poison? Or could think the antibiotics are poison. Yeah. Are, there, are people struggling with coming to the understanding of their true condition? So, why do people perish? There's a text about perishing. 2 Thessalonians 2.10. Somebody read that for us. You know, what's the common reason given? If you were to go to most Christian churches and say, why do the wicked perish? They haven't been forgiven. They haven't been forgiven. God's punishment. What else? Sin. And why does, and why does sin result in, in death? Violating God's law. Because God said he would kill you. <laughs> okay. I guess you're not covered by the blood. Okay, read 2 Thessalonians 2.10. What? And this tells us a reason why they perish. And every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing, they perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. And why do they perish? They refuse something. <laughs> and so be saved. Now, now that word saved also it means? Healed. healed. Saved means healed. Like salvation, salve, saved means healed. So they refuse to love the truth and thus be healed. Well, how is refusing to love the truth connected to perishing? What's, what's the connection there? And how is truth connected to, to, to being saved? Is it they refuse to love the truth that their sins have been legally paid for and they refuse to accept the penalty so they, uh, that someone has gone to the execution chamber in their behalf and since they won't accept that penalty at their behalf, they have to be executed? Is that, is that what it's talking about? Is the truth the power? Truth? The truth of the power. Okay, there's one truth. We have to first accept truth of our own condition, don't we? That we have a problem, that we're sick. Do you know that there are presentations out there that suggest that the real problem is with God? That we're not the problem. God's the problem. That was Satan's allegations from the beginning. That God is angry, and God is wrathful, and God needs to be appeased. And if we could just get him appeased, then there's nothing we can offer him, you understand, because we're sinful. We can't offer him anything that would really satisfy his anger and wrath. Uh, so we, we have to offer him the blood of a perfect sacrifice. And I know what we'll do to get God to be gracious to us again. You know, when he sends his son, we'll kill his son and offer him his son's blood. Then he'll be really happy with us. That's what's commonly taught, isn't it? Well, that's, that's Satan's distortion. God doesn't need to be appeased. If God is for us, who can be against us? God is on our side. But, so one of the truths, the real problem, the correct, as I as a physician like to say, the correct diagnosis. If our diagnosis is wrong, then our treatment will be wrong. 
And much of the diagnosis that people have, when God said in the garden, in the day that you eat, you will surely die, they hear that as, in the day you eat, I will surely kill you. That's not what it says. And so they diagnose it wrong. Well, if that's the problem, God's going to kill us now, then we need a solution to keep him from killing us, don't we? And so that we create this entire construct to keep the, to the people work on God to keep him from killing us. Pardon? How can you get people to believe that? Though? That other construct? Yeah. Because they're taught it from their earliest childhood on. It's put in. How, how was it that you started speaking English? I learned. Did, did you? Did somebody set you down in school and indoctrinate you in it, or did you just grow up in an environment where it just assimilated right into it without you even knowing? It's just hard to think, though. Right. It was, it was up, we, when you raise kids in environments where everyone around them assumes this to be true and tells them this, they come up into adulthood without ever questioning it. That's just the way it works. But it's never presented quite that way. It's not presented God's going to kill you. It's presented in such a way that you, you disassociate with, with the, the reasoning behind it and say, I accept it. You know, what, what, what you see is the is the logical if you if you do this then God has to do this for us but it's not taught that way in the other churches it's taught that God loved us so much he died for us if we accept his sacrifice for us then we will meet God it's not saying that uh, I believe God you know is angry up there with us and we've got to believe this or you know they don't tell children that you've never when I was a kid far more subtle. Yeah, I agree. Well, it's much more subtle. God loves us. He doesn't want to have to kill us, but, but he isn't killed is never forced used. to. Several examples, several examples. Youth pastor, youth pastor talking to the youth at a youth retreat. Tells them all the wonders of the best human imagination can describe the treats that God has in store for us in the new heaven and the earth. Uh, all the wonderful things of lion laying down with the lamb and so forth and so on. Streets of gold and all this. And after that, he whips out a marshmallow man hanging on a string and lights him on fire. And begins to describe how God will burn you in hell for all eternity if you don't accept what Christ has done. Children's story. I remember... When I was a child in church, that uh, they had children's story in which somebody was dressed up in white robes with gold wings and a little halo over their head, and they had a gold clipboard with a gold pen. And they came out, and they were jotting down all the sins of the children. And if you didn't get the blood of Jesus to cover those sins, then God would punish you for those sins. Yes, making a list and checking it twice to see who's been naughty and nice. Exactly right. You, you don't think these ideas get connected in our minds? Sure they do. Now, and so we have these ideas. Uh, what is it that Christ came to do? Pay the penalty for your sin. Because in order for God to be uh, just, penalties have to be imposed. You don't hear that stuff? Not, <laughs> <laughs> Not since you've been coming here, huh? <laughs> Praise the Lord for that. Okay. You know, even if you say, even if you don't say God is going to kill you, we talk about God's judgment, God's justice, God's faith. We, we talk about this line in the sand that at some point God has to act and it's not going to be a pretty sight. So I think that this sense is there, that at some point in time, God has said, I'm going to do everything I can, but when you get to that line in the sand, when we talk about judgment, from the way I grew up, 
judgment was when that God gets to that point in the sand, that line in the sand, where probation closes. You know, but, but you know it, that might be said in many ways, but at that point, he's going to kill us. Let, let's close on this point. It wasn't ever said, God's going to kill you. I mean, you may interpret it that way, but the language used is not so... So in your face. No, I, no, I, I, no, wait. No, listen. I've heard on the pulpits in multiple churches that God will punish the wicked for their sins. That, that language explicitly stated. God is required by justice to punish the wicked for their sins. To, or destroy them. Yes. 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 I've actually heard that. But you said yourself that you reach a point where your heart is hardened and you cannot, so that Lucifer reached a point where he could not accept. That's right. Does that mean, though, that he, he... was cast out of heaven. Yeah, does that mean in the end, though, God has to inflict an external penalty upon him he would not otherwise reap? No. See, this, this, is, this, is what, this is what basically means. Lucifer comes to the angelic host and to all the earthly beings. Look, guys, I've never said God wasn't powerful. God is the all-powerful. What I've said is the truth. This is Lucifer talking now, okay, uh, is, is that God is not good. You see, if he could get a little self-restraint, if he could just get a hold of himself and, and get his anger and wrath in check so he didn't lash out, if he could just not you know, pour his power out upon us and leave us alone over here on the earth in the corner of the universe, well, we could live for all eternity in our sin because there's nothing wrong with sin. There's something wrong with God. See, this is the idea that the consequences of sin are imposed, that the God does it. And if he wouldn't, then there's nothing wrong, you see? The, and it's a subtle attack against on God. And so what I want to close with is the methodology that Satan used in heaven to start this whole war. What methodology? What was his method of attack? Fear. Fear. Of doubt. God's not fair. Rumors. Well, there you go. Rumors, innuendos, gossip, behind-the-scenes subtleties. Not He didn't come out in the open and just say, uh, God can't be trusted. It was little subtle distortions and misrepresentations and gossip behind the scene. Right? We, I'm going to let you know, as this Good News Tour is coming forward this past week, this is happening. Watch for these methods being used. Right now, we've gotten some feedback that behind the scenes, there are gossips going around, slandering, misrepresenting, suggesting that those of us who speak for the Good News Tour don't believe the truth, that we don't believe that God has ever used his power to put some of his children to rest. Well, of course we do. We've talked many times about how God brought the flood and and put children to rest in Sodom and Gomorrah and the 185,000 Assyrians, the firstborn of Egypt, and I could go on and on. What we, what we make a distinction about is the difference between putting people to rest in the grave and the eternal consequences that happen in the end. Those are two different experiences altogether. But these little, little representations, or we don't believe that Christ came as our substitute and his death was necessary for our salvation. Of course it was, and of course we do. But we don't believe that he had to die to make his father happy with us. We don't believe he had to die to change God's attitude. We believe that the Son, that the Father is in the Son, reconciling the world to himself, as it says in 2 Corinthians 5.19. And because we present it in this way, consistent with the scriptures, right now, we have this last week, we have had really come under a lot of attacks behind the scene with gossips and misrepresentations. And I'm not going to tell you all the details, but watch for it. It's going on. It's going on. And it's over this very issue we're talking about in here today. God's character, his methods, his principles, how he deals with his rebellious children. And the same innuendos are going on. Yes? With what you said, I just want to comment on that Christ came 
can change our attitude. Exactly. Exactly. Not just our attitude. He came to heal, restore, regenerate, recreate us, put us back into the perfect design he created Adam in in the beginning. That's what he came to do. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are exactly as Jesus has revealed you to be. Gracious, loving, humble, patient, kind. And that you don't need to be persuaded. You have been on our side from the very beginning. Send your Holy Spirit to enlighten our minds. Help the distortions that we have grown up with, that we have heard so many times, to be purged from our minds and enable us to be these conduits of light, these conduits of truth, these conduits of love, that we can go out and enlighten this world for you, preparing the world for your coming. We also pray in a special way for the upcoming Good News Tour, that you will prepare this community, that you will send your spirit out and your angels to throw a hedge of protection around, and you will bring the people that need to hear this message and pour out your spirit that this last day message will go forward to lighten the world for your coming. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.